Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Olympic Sports for Strength and Conditioning at Clemson University, Rick Franzblau. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, delighted to welcome Rick to the podcast today. Only been a, probably a handful of people that I've had on from US colleges. So it's great to get Rick on, who's obviously at Clemson University, uh, and chat about that sort of environment and his working day and a couple of other topics. So a couple of other topics that we do dive into are his philosophy on building speed, uh, mitigating hamstring injury risk, uh, building hypertrophy, reducing uh, hypertrophic responses, and also uh, isometrics versus eccentrics, which is a really interesting uh, little segment of the episode. So Rick's a great guy, and I'm sure you will get loads of information from this episode. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the groin bar, and the all-new human track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdeperformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at valdeperformance. So their all-new human track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results, with some more to come, which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valdeperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Valdeperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So big thanks to Forstex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forstex.com. But also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstex, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re- with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So without further ado, over to the episode with Rick Franzblau. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am absolutely delighted to welcome Rick Franzblau to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Rick. No, thanks, Rob, and uh, looking forward to it, and thanks for having me. Did I do well with the pronunciation? Yeah, that wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. <laughs> I've heard a lot worse <laughs> over my years. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. It always makes me cringe when I'm, uh, yeah, something I'm not quite sure of, so I'm glad it's all right. Um, anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself, uh, what you've done previous to, uh, to work at Clemson and, and what that role actually is. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so originally I grew up 
uh, Western New York, kind of a kind of middle-sized city, Rochester, New York. Grew up playing uh, football, baseball, and basketball. Uh, that was kind of my forelay into strength and conditioning as a high school athlete, just trying to improve my performance on the field. Uh, by the time I got to be, I believe, a junior in high school, I narrowed down just to football, American football. Um, started to get recruited by a few colleges. Uh, ended up going to Colgate University, a small school in central New York. Uh, played football there. Actually entered um, the university level having four surgeries al already uh, when I started my collegiate career. And then by the end of my freshman year, I had two more. By the time I was a sophomore, uh, I was medically DQ'd. So that kind of opened the door for starting my strength and conditioning career. Uh, I got working with the, the strength and conditioning staff there at Colgate. Uh, so I spent three years as a student assistant there. Uh, by my last year, my senior year in college, um, I was running some of my own groups and they, they'd gained a lot of trust in my abilities. So by that point in time, I really knew this is what I wanted to pursue as a career. Uh, as I finished up that, I kind of sent a, they probably sent a resume and cover letter out to about a hundred different division one schools. Um, one of the ones I was very fortunate to hear back from was Clemson university. So actually the day after I graduated, I drove down there, uh, started my internship. Uh, at the time I was, I was working mainly with football. Uh, then from there, I got to work into a graduate assistant position, was still working with football. Uh, started to take on track and field and swimming and diving. Um, at that point in time, our department kind of split into two. Football had their own staff and Olympic sports. Uh, and I was really tied in close to the track and field program. So I stayed uh, kind of the Olympic sports path, um, moving into assistant position and then eventually uh, assistant director. And then finally about uh, – about three and a half years ago or so, I uh, moved into the director position here. So it's been a pretty pretty unique uh, career path and that I've been at one place uh, mainly for the past uh, 13 years. My only other, you know, relative experience was as an undergraduate uh, at Colgate, but uh, I think provides me some unique perspective on things and uh, things I value is just keeping your head down and, and grinding away and um, staying patient, focusing on the process. And obviously I'm a little biased because it turned out well for me, but you know, I think you really, <laughs> really take, take faith and pride in the job that you're doing. And, um, if you do that, other opportunities will open up for you and you don't have to necessarily actively pursue, but just focus on, on the process and developing yourself, uh, as a, as a person and coach, but, uh, my current role, I oversee all the Olympic sports, um, strength conditioning, at Clemson. Uh, my two main priorities are baseball and men's soccer. Um, so that's what I kind of transitioned into the past three years. Uh, but I have a big track background, uh, about 10 years, still stay involved in the program. Uh, and something I'm really keen on and I, and I promote and push with all my assistants is at some point in time, you got to work in track and field. Every single uh, performance coach to really understand periodization uh, and what it is as um, yeah, it's heart is athletics, track, track and field is athletics. And if you understand that, uh, you know, it really sets you up into moving into some of the other sports. And I think understanding periodization, how all the, all the different components of training kind of fit in together. But uh, it's been a, been a good run so far and enjoying my time at Clemson still. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you kind of get your guys into the, into the track side of things. How do the, the people that 
the, sorry, the coaches that don't have a track background, how do they feel? How do they, I know it's a, uh, you'll have a lot of different guys who go through it, but do people come out of the side and really value that experience of working in track to then go back into team sports? Yeah, I, I think so. It can be tough at times, particularly in the college setting. Uh, track can be a tough, it can be a tough venture because you're usually working with six different coaches from the different event areas. Uh, and it can be a scheduling and communication nightmare sometimes. But uh, the one real positive thing is track coaches are slow to take you in. So you really have to understand the sport, speak their language, and then you can kind of start to see eye to eye and work together well. But uh, one thing I respect about track coaches is they, they are patient with that and they kind of make you earn your stripes uh, before they just kind of let you uh, mess around with their kids and, and have full go at, at, at uh, planning of training and all that. But um, yeah, I think the track background is tremendously helpful. So where did your where did your love of that side of things come from? Was that just been thrown in the deep end, and that was your first thing, and that was kind of where you've where you've jumped off from, or was it something deeper than that? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I was I was real fortunate at Clemson. We've had a pretty rich history in track and field, and just being able to work with some really elite athletes, I think, taught me more uh, through that route than anything I've I've learned or read in a book or research was just observing and watching some of these really high caliber athletes and understanding kind of what physical properties they have and, and allows them to be elite, I think uh, taught me an awful lot. And also understanding when you're working with people this level and, you know, what kind of, you know, tournaments, Ferraris is, is understanding what they're capable in terms of outputs and how I have to be careful of volumes and those types of things. And, really understanding the whole spectrum of where people fall from static spring continuum to uh, what they can tolerate in terms of volumes and intensities. Um, you know, tr track and field is going to provide a better, better background for you than anything else. Mm -hmm. So moving, so when you've moved away from track and field, mm -hmm. what was, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of things there, but what are the biggest things that you kind of take, have taken away from that experience to then revert back into the, um, the soccer side of things and, and they're the team sports that you work with? Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of it, uh, periodization, understanding how, how this all fits together is, um, you know, the technical, tactical component and also the, the strength training and, um, you know, the, the effects they have on the body and, and managing stress levels. But, and also, you know, the importance of linear speed training in a lot of your field sports and particularly uh, you know, the hot button topic of soccer is, is hamstring injuries as uh, track and field provides you a really good background in terms of how to how to train to, to mitigate those types of issues. And, and if you do have them, how to kind of uh, help in terms of building back to return to play. But uh, it's been really helpful in that regard. And I think understanding, um, you know, and I've worked with the whole gamut of track and field from sprinters to cross country and uh, the jumps and, and your, your field sport athletes kind of fall somewhere between the jumpers and cross country kids in terms of what their statics, where they are in the static spring continuum. But uh, being able to analyze and assess those things and figure out what limiting factors are, uh, I think the track background helps an awful lot in preparing you for that. Do you just want to talk to us? You mentioned a couple of times now the static spring continuum. Mm -hmm. You just want to explain that for us? Yeah, just, just kind of where guys fall in terms of um, how they go about producing force. So, you know, obviously the furthest end of the static 
end would be power lifters. They grind it out. They rely on contractile frictional elements to produce force. On the furthest end of the other spectrum, um, you would have like some of your 100 meter sprinters, some of your jumpers, super elastic. Um, they really rely a lot on tendon strength to generate force. Uh, and you, you kind of have athletes that fall all amongst the, the spectrum there, particularly in the field sports setting. So I, I work soccer right now. We have a couple wingers that really kind of fall towards the spring end of things. Um, a couple center backs, much more towards the static end. And you kind of have guys that fall all along the spectrum. And, and with that being said, you know, a lot of times that ties into what their tolerance is for different volume levels too, whether it be high speed running or, or other uh, mechanical load metrics, but um, understanding who they are as an athlete, I think gives you a really good base in terms of how you're going to program for them. So would you mind giving us a bit of a kind of general overview of, of how you would program for them different guys? Maybe just maybe a couple of examples would be, would be really nice. Yeah. Um, I guess diving into too far, but one thing I've gotten into here recently is the neurotyping. Uh, Christian Thibodeau's system. So people are kind of in different buckets based off their dominant neurotransmitter. So type 1s tend to be dopamine dominant. Type 2 is adrenaline dominant. Type 3 serotonin dominant. So your type 1s, you have type 1A, type 1B. Type 1As uh, handle intensity very well, very outgoing, uh, can handle a lot of frequency, but do poorly with volume. Guys that are 1Bs tend to do a little bit better with volume because uh, they have higher acetylcholine levels. But, um, and these, these tend to be your real, real elastic ones. So these are real explosive guys. Your type twos, uh, so type ones are more the neurologically driven type. Type twos, more the muscular driven. Um, so these types, they, they tend to like bodybuilding methods a little bit more. Uh, they can handle and tolerate volume a little bit better. And then your, your third end of the spectrum, the type threes, uh, tend to like high rep type stuff. Um, they tend to be high stress, high anxiety type people. And I don't program by any means with large groups entirely based off this, but small nuances and little things we, we change up will be based off this, whether it be volumes or if we're doing types of potentiation complexes. Uh, for instance, complexes may work really well uh, with type 1As and the potentiation effect but more French contrast may work well with type 1Bs. But a type 2, they're not going to have those elastic qualities. They'll go through a, a French contrast cycle, and you're going to ex expect potentiation by the time you get to the fourth exercise, and they're going to end up jumping the same exact every single time because they just don't have those elastic properties, and they don't manage those that type of stress well. Um, so it's, it's not by any means what we entirely program based off but it's just another lens that we look through as we're doing some specific things particularly some of our higher higher level kids who have a little bit more training background mm -hmm. cool so you mentioned a couple of times about um hamstring injuries obviously in in soccer that's something that doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be going away uh is, is there anything yeah. that stands out in your program that uh that you do that tries to mitigate that and does that differ between the the groups that you've just mentioned? Yeah, and I, and I think kind of the big thing with, with looking at hamstrings is you can't just pinpoint one thing. There's a lot of factors, and you have to have a holistic approach in terms of um, 
how you approach it. And at, at the end of the day, it's just good, solid, well-founded training. So, I mean, you're looking at sequencing of training. So whether it be a field sport, making sure if you're doing full field work one day, that's probably when you're going to be doing more hamstring type stuff in the gym versus a day you're doing more small sided games. You're probably going to do more pushing or quad dominant type movements in the gym. Um, obviously a big one now with monitoring is load management. We look a lot at high speed running and acute to chronic ratios and they provide a really good guide. Um, they, you know, they don't by any means tell you exactly or predict injuries, but provide a good, good guide for you. Uh, but I think a, a hugely overlooked one are biomechanics and posture, um, is you have to be able to be in good pelvic tilt, have external oblique strength, hamstring strength, uh, internal obliques, transverse abdominis, pull the rib cage down. To be able to run with your upright running, max velocity sprinting with good pelvic tilt. That's, you know, really the, if I, if I were to pinpoint one thing is, is you have to really correct biomechanics and postural issues and then really start addressing a lot of the strength. So obviously we, we emphasize eccentric strength a lot. Um, we do use a Nord board and test uh, Nordic strength, but do a lot of uh, heavy uh, eccentric Nordics. Um, we've gotten into flywheel training a good bit here recently. We'll do a lot of deadlifts into RDLs um, on the flywheel. And we've, um, through hooking up on the K meter, we've seen overloads of 30 to 40% on the RDL eccentrically, which has been really good. And I, you know, I think lastly is general and specific work capacities. If you're more aerobically fit athletes, they're going to hold up better throughout the course of a match. And a lot of time your, your injuries, soft tissue injuries are, are occurring in the later portions of halves. Um, is the more robust they are and, and better aerobic engine, they're going to they're hold up better throughout the course of a half an entire game. And I, I think all these things together uh, help mitigate potential issues. Mm -hmm. I had a little discussion with a very short, brief discussion with Derek Hansen on this. And I think this was this is on his mind pre, pre his uh, NSCA talk. But do you think we're guilty of uh, focusing too much on the strength side of things and, and not focusing enough or give enough time, effort, or um, yeah, it's, I suppose time and effort to the the sequencing, the biomechanics, and the the technique side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the Nordics and all the other strength movements, they just help support your sprint work. At the end of the day, your sprint work is your most specific conditioning of your hamstrings for whether it be soccer or lacrosse or whatever field sport you're looking at and usually the biggest issue is pelvic tilt posturally biomechanically driven issue and then also um relaxation and coordination of the hamstring particularly at at uh, at high velocities are they a coordinated runner and do they relax and and hit proper positions and those types of things and that'll do as much for your preparation as any nordic curl or or rdl variation or anything like that and a, and a huge component we with me, my track background, um, we, we build through a lot of max velocity work with our soccer guys. We'll get up to sprints of 40 to 50 meters, and we'll do, we'll do flying 20s and, and things like that to, to stress the hamstring. And, and sprinting in general will help. It's the highest order CNS activity. It will help everything below it. So if you want to get stronger in the gym too, 
be sprinting, do some max velocity sprint work. And uh, I, I can't emphasize enough how, how helpful that is uh, in preparation for field sport athletes. Cool. So just moving on to the uh, the next point we, we had on the list to, to kind of chat about was um, was building hypertrophy and reducing the hypertrophic responses depending on who you're working with and what kind of phase you're in. Um, do you just want to give – I know you've um, – I listened to your, your podcast with Joel, which was excellent, by the way, and um, a couple of articles that you've done. Do you just want to give us a little bit of a, an example of, of them two scenarios and where, um, where where they may lie in programming and with who and when? Yeah, for sure. Um, and really for us, uh, being a movement-based sports setting where, you know, collisions aren't, aren't very frequent and of the utmost importance, you know, Generally speaking, hypertrophy is not highly sought after for us. It's we're we're focusing more on mass specific sport, mass specific force, and relative power capabilities. Uh, and hypertrophy is kind of like a secondary benefit from some of the other goals ch- we're chasing. But with that being said, I think you do have certain exceptions in which uh, merits a lot of focus in this area. For us, uh, one I work with baseball. Uh, and obviously lean body mass can help our guys in terms of increasing bat speed, pitch velocity, those types of things. So you kind of have uh, some athletes that fall into that bucket. And also uh, from time to time, whether it be a track athlete or even a soccer player, they are so lean and so skinny that significant hypertrophy will actually improve their relative power more than anything else. So a uh, good example I have, I worked with a hurdler. Uh, she won gold in, in Rio a couple of years ago, Brianna Rollins. She came in as an incoming freshman at 115 pounds. By her senior year, she was 130, which is about a 15% uh, gain of body mass, which is a ton for a female athlete. But her improvements on the track were significant and continuous throughout that time. And she just came in real thin, and hypertrophy actually helped improve relative power, relative strength uh, more than anything else. Um, then kind of the other ones that kind of fall on that, you have your genetic freaks. Uh, so I've seen it in track more so than any other sport, but people just look at a weight and they gain muscle, um, which could be detrimental to their performance in the sport. And also a lot of our older athletes, um, that are physically mature and we're trying to prioritize explosive strength. Kind of these are the buckets and athletes in which we will focus more on whether it be increase in hypertrophy or trying to limit it. Um, in terms of increasing hypertrophy, um, again, I kind of look back through that neurotyping lens. So if we have some type 1 guys, the dopamine dominant, the love intensity and frequency, they do well with really heavy stuff, low volume. Uh, so even just some old school west side max effort stuff works really well with these guys. Uh, five three one program, kind of one set all out. Uh, low volume, high intensity works well. Uh, but meanwhile, these type two that handle volumes well, uh, this is where we get into a lot more of the fatigue percent stuff that I've written on. Um, right, and a lot of this has been influenced by uh, Dan Baker's work. Is So to give you an example, if we're squatting at 70% of somebody's 1RM max, we may have them fatigue to 30, 40, 30 to 40% of their initial rep velocity. So if they're around 0.60 meters per second for the first rep, then they'll do as many reps as they can 
until they get down to 0.36 meters per second, or it would be 40% decrement of velocity. So how is this beneficial? Obviously, a lot of time under tension, which helps with mTOR signaling. But I think the added benefit of using the velocity-based training is the intent and purpose behind every rep, too, uh, is, is they're getting a lot more power output out of those reps. Uh, we've seen a lot of benefits uh, out of that and using those fatigue percent guidelines for hypertrophy. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, limiting hypertrophy um, will do lower fatigue percent work. So a lot of times uh, we'll stick around 10%. So if we're squatting at 80% and the first rep is around 0.5 meters per second, then we'll do as many reps as we can until we get to about 0.5 uh, meters per second, which would be 10% decrement. Um, so we can do it that way or we can set the number of reps. We can set the reps at three, have them do the set, and then if they're above 10% fatigue, drop the weight. If they're under, they can have a, a slight increase in weight. Um, some other things we've done to limit hypertrophy, I've uh, gotten into flywheel training a lot more. So eccentric overload to help prefer, preferentially recruit the type 2B fibers. And then also the rep rate is really high in the flywheel. So very high intensity, but the time under tension is low. So if you're doing a set of five reps, those five reps will be over in, you know, five to seven seconds or sometimes even less. So very high intensity, low time under tension, and then no axial loading. So that's a really good recipe for improving athleticism, selectively hypertrophying the fibers, type fibers you want, and then limiting overall hypertrophy, which for a lot of our athletes in our setting is really important and prioritized. Is there any influences that you have out there on, in terms of the hypertrophy side of things, in terms of strength coaches and strength scientists mm -hmm. and stuff that you would guide people towards? Um, I think uh, Dan Baker, a lot of his, he's been a huge influence for us uh, in terms of looking at fatigue percents um, and selectively uh, trying to hypertrophy certain fibers. Uh, uh, Hank overseas track uh, track coach. He's written a lot on selectively hypertrophying uh, fast twitch fibers. Those have been big influences from us. And then it's been just taking other, you know, well-known programs and, and alter altering it to fit the intensities and volumes that we want. Like a uh, juggernaut would be another good one. Juggernaut method. We've used that a lot. Uh, the eights and fives. Um, with a velocity threshold that works well with the uh, kind of type 2 kids that, that handle volume well uh, for hypertrophy. So I think it's a lot of times you're not reinventing the wheel, but you're just kind of small alterations and adding these fatigue percents and velocity thresholds uh, adds an element of auto-regulation, but also, uh, you know, increases the intent of every repetition for the athletes, which uh, carries a lot of weight and merit in itself. Mm -hmm. Do you work with any female sport, uh, female athletes and female sports? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, uh, our strength coach works with uh, women's soccer. I work closely with her, and a lot of her programming is the same. So work closely with them, and then I still uh, stay involved with volleyball and, and track and field a good bit. Um, so, yeah, kind of the baseball and soccer, men's soccer, but I definitely stay involved in helping out with a lot of our other sports too. 
So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Rick. Hope you enjoyed part one. So coming up in part two, isometrics versus eccentrics, more on that. And a nice little segment on uh, the effect of technology uh, on interns and assistants and potentially more experienced coaches as well. So that's a really interesting little, uh, little piece as well. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a specialist gym manufacturer in Belfast and Northern Ireland, but also ship and, uh, and install gyms all over the world, from Australia to Dubai to America to Everton Football Club here in, here in England. So if you are looking for a full gym refurb or just some extra bits and bobs to, uh, to add to what you've already got, have a little look on Black Box Fitness's website. So that's blkboxfitness.com and check them out on Twitter and Instagram at blkboxfitness. So they do some really cool stuff uh, on Instagram, so make sure you have a little look over there. Branding's really cool, um, some really interesting little uh, little videos and images and stuff, so that's, that's really always really interesting to see. So over to part two with Rick, hope you enjoy. One thing that I wanted to chat about, and this is, this is something that I, I guess comes up all the time, um, in in the college setting, that's kind of early morning training versus versus the mental and physical recovery that doesn't come with early morning training. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about the from an insider point of view the the challenges that you have with regards to the just the logistics of making that happen, and obviously what what is the perfect scenario isn't always what happens uh, in reality. But yeah, what are, the, what are the logistical problems that you have which may make you have to do early morning training sessions and what would be the ideal for you? Yeah, well, definitely uh, we're not at ideal, but, but working the best we can to get there. Uh, I think we're fortunate in that our Olympic sports program is, is not, uh, it's not huge. We have uh, 14 varsity sports training in our facility. Um, so split up throughout the week, uh, for morning and afternoon. Uh, sometimes we have to do some 6 AMs because of scheduling with class classes, practice schedules, uh, traveling, these types of things. We do try and stay away from it as much as we can. Uh, and I think versus a school that has 40 varsity sports, we can probably pull it off a little bit better. I think, uh, some things we've done to kind of ameliorate this issue a little bit is, um, uh, extend slots into the weekend, so mid to late mornings, Saturday, Sundays, to get some groups in uh, during those times has helped out. But for the most part, we try and limit it to one to two times a week if a group has to come in early. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, this is kind of a hot-button topic in, in collegiate strength conditioning is everybody's monitoring we're prioritizing educating about sleep. Some schools are even monitoring, which we have been for the last couple of years. Yet at the same time, they got their kids coming in three to four times a week at six o'clock in the morning is, well, if you're doing 6 a.m. workouts every day, you're not prioritizing sleep. Um, so with us using the wearables for the last couple of years, uh, which we, we've used fatigue science um, and being able to watch their sleep patterns closely when they do have 6 a.m.s, they do make some shift in terms of what their routine is and their sleep onset, but it's not nearly drastic enough that they're not incurring huge sleep debts with these 6 a.m. workouts. So um, kind of our, our deal, um, 
you know, we, if we can, we try and get it later in the week. So if we can do a Friday morning in the off season uh, where they got Saturday and Sunday, they can sleep in. I think gives them a better opportunity to adapt to these stressors that we're giving them in the early morning. Uh, and also, I, I don't subscribe into the belief and thought that you're building mental toughness through getting them up early. I, I do believe and think that there is a sense of sacrifice uh, and rites of passage to being part of a elite group and getting up early. Um, but it's it doesn't carry enough weight. This is something you're going to be doing all the time. So I, this time of year for us with the soccer teams, we do do one 6 a.m. workout, which will be on Friday. Um, we get after it real good, and then they get the kind of whole weekend to, to recover and recuperate. But there's just too much research out there right now showing how much how important sleep it is, and um, and it's just anecdotally in our own use of the sleep bands and, and focusing on it more, we've had an improvement in mitigating soft tissue injuries. Is uh, it's just not worth it. And sometimes even if you got to go three or four times a week, it may be better just to cut one of those days. Because the other day, it's not it's not the workouts they're doing or stresses that's applied. It's you know how well they can they adapt to it and um, you know achieve these higher levels of fitness. And if, if they can't adapt to these stressors we're giving them, then then we need to seriously evaluate um, you know what we're doing. But you know def, definitely important for us, and we've seen a lot of good stuff uh, getting into our sleep monitoring. Uh, to be our, our second year using it but uh has been really helpful for us so far nice so one one thing that comes to mind when i talk about this and i've talked about this a couple of times with people is the coach side of things the players don't yep. want to get out of bed at 6am but i'm guessing the coaches aren't delighted about that either how do you manage that how, how do you manage that side of things you're, you're talking about in terms of my staff the performance yeah staff. in terms of managing your yeah. staff and rotating the guys no the soccer guys yeah it's uh it's definitely part of it too. And, um, you know, some sports lend itself to two early mornings a little bit more. Uh, and with that being said, you know, if, if I have a coach that's working with say, uh, sometimes women's golf gets doing a lot of, uh, maybe like two early mornings, uh, during their off season period is, you know, we well, the other days, why don't you come in at nine or 10 o'clock in the morning? Cause, at the end of the day, you know, we we have to be recovering too. And actually, myself and my entire staff, we we wear the sleep wearables too, and been trying to hold ourselves accountable on it too. But uh, you got to practice what you preach uh, as well. And sometimes we get so caught up in this, we don't do the best job of of taking care of ourselves. But you know, just trying to, we're fortunate enough. Our staff's gotten large enough where we can, you know, we can have some backup and secondary. Uh, strength coaches for each team that can fill in from time to time. But, yeah, it's important for the staff, too, is uh, I know back in the day uh, I had swimming and diving. So we'd do – we did 6 a.m. lifts every single day, Monday through Friday, whole off season, the whole in season. Uh, and, yeah, that'll, that'll wear your coaches down, too, and and uh, limits your, your efficiency, too. But, uh, you know, definitely a, a point of emphasis for us as well. So just just generally, I know this is um, going a little bit off piste, but I'll uh, just from my, just my own interest. What kind of what kind of hours are your guys doing? Is it is it is it? Yeah, no, actually, it's it's been good. Uh, there's not a ton of research out there, but I found I found some, and uh, so we do it. We've done across all our teams in some capacity. 
Um, we try and give a larger percentage. We don't outfit entire teams, but a larger percentage to our in-season teams and kind of rotate that through as we flip from fall to spring. But we did average over seven hours uh, of actual, not time of bed, but actual quality sleep uh, for our student, which I thought was really good. Uh, actually, I think our, our women's soccer team last last fall was uh, 7.5. Uh, <laughs> that was tremendous. Take that. <laughs> yeah, um, for, for college athletes. But really, the, the three things we highlighted uh, and found uh, made the biggest difference was uh, their nap timing is getting rid of the late naps. So like after practice, 6 p.m., falling asleep for 30 minutes, throwing off their circadian rhythm. Uh, so addressing that issue, uh, the blue light, so trying to get them to get off the phone and an iPad and computer the best they can, you know, an hour before bed. And then just trying to develop some consistency uh, in their sleep onset and wake times. And those those three things help us out an awful lot. But we've we've set up a really kind of detailed infrastructure to deal with uh, the sleep monitoring we're, we're doing our our incoming athletes, they do the athlete sleep behavior questionnaire. And if they score above a certain threshold, they're kind of red flagged. We talk to them. We suggest they talk with our sports psychologist who has a more in-depth conversation with them. And then from there, he may either continue conversation with them uh, and work with them in more detail or may refer them to the nutritionist if it could be a nutrition issue. If it's sleep hygiene, usually goes my way or, or it could go even uh, further up the the food chain per se to the team physician, but we kind of have this infrastructure uh, set in place. So all of our athletes do the sleep questionnaire when they first come on, if they do have an issue uh, and want to work on it, we kind of help them through the channels. And then uh, we offer the opportunity for them to get on a sleep band too and, and monitor their progress. But uh, that it's important that we kind of have that infrastructure set up and then also that we educate them too. So, when our when our freshmen come in uh, that first summer, we have eight eight an eight course curriculum with them. Uh, one of the classes I'll do, which I educate them on sleep hygiene and patterns, uh, and then we'll do a separate session going over just our fatigue science uh, specifics, so they understand the metrics and those types of things. But it's great if you're monitoring it, but you really have to have infrastructure and support set up, and also make sure that you're educating. Uh, you know, everybody that's, that's, that's dealing with the student athletes, they know how to address the student athletes if they are having issues. And, uh, you know, you're not, you're not making things, uh, you know, punishing them for poor sleep and all that. You're trying to get them to, to buy into this process and then help them out uh, if they are having any issues. Cool. So we've mentioned it's interesting because this this was on the list, but it's gone this way perfectly for me to kind of set this set this next question up. We've mentioned uh, sleep monitors. We've mentioned uh, Nordboard. We've mentioned velocity based training. All tech. But yes, a lot has been around, especially the the velocity based training stuff been around for a long time, but has really developed and kind of come into its own these these last five or ten years. With with the I know you're doing some hiring at the minute with the young strength coaches coming through the the graduate assistants the interns, how would they have been influenced by this technology? Are you seeing a marked difference to how they view their role as a strength coach compared to how you saw your role or thought your role was going to be 15 years ago? And how how's that how's that tech influence them? Mm-hmm. 
No, I think that's a great a great question, Rob, and it's something I've given a lot of thought here recently. Uh, and actually had <laughs> had one of my interns uh, ask me the other day, well, "What did you do before there's velocity based training?" But I need to jump into all that. But um, but yeah, no, that we've we've invested a lot in the technology, uh, both time and resources, and it's helped us out an awful lot with a number of different things: performance profiling, load monitoring readiness testing, diagnostic testing, all these things. But at the end of the day, it's really important for us to understand that that's just these are just guides and a piece of the puzzle and that young coaches still have to develop their coaching eye, their ability to see athletic-based movements, whether it be sprinting, uh, agility, change of direction type work, plyometrics, um, their coaching intuition, so being able to read their athletes and uh, what their – what their mood is, their willingness to train, those types of things, being able to relate to our athletes and coaches and create buy-ins. Create buy-in uh, is we have to develop these alongside uh, with the proficiency, uh, with the sports science. Uh, and to kind of give you a good example is I look at acute to chronic ratios. Uh, they're great. We use them an awful lot, uh, particularly with our field-based sports and have all our cool little diagrams and dashboards set up through Coach Me Plus and all that. Uh, but just look at how much that research has changed in a short period of time. So now we're talking about coupling versus uncoupling. We're talking about exponentially weighted versus standard rolling average. Now we're talking about how, do all the numbers need to change. So research is providing us a good guide, but we can't live and die by it because there's so much volatility in the research right now. It's at the end of the day, you have to develop coaching intuition too. So when my athletes walk through the door, if we got a morning workout, I can tell based off their body language walking through the door what their willingness to train is. I can infer what their readiness is, those types of things, because you're not always going to be in a setting where you have all the technology or you may not have the time to set everything up and run an entire group through. And coaching intuition becomes, it, it still remains the most important piece, I think, in terms of affecting your decision-making. Um, you know, it's watching them interact in warm-ups. Are they talkative? You know, they have a lot of energy. Uh, more specifically, watching movement when they're warming up. I, I watch ground contacts a lot, uh, whether we're, we're doing some accelerations or some plyometric work. Uh, you're getting a feel for what is their state of readiness, what is their willingness to train that day. Um, and that's going to provide as much good feedback, you know, as any piece of technology or, or ratio and those types of things that you look at. So it's, you know, it's a holistic approach and we can't, we can't lose sight of the importance of developing a coach's eye and intuition and those types of things. Um, but I, I think what also has to be thought is we can't place the culpability on these young strength coaches. Well, you guys don't know how to coach and you have no coaching intuition. At the end of the day, it's up to, you know, us as mentors and, and those that are leading programs that we're, we're ensuring that these young coaches are having exposure to the sports science, but also developing their coaches out of coaching intuition, their ability to relate to coaches and athletes. Because with just one end of the spectrum, you're not, you're not going to be very efficient. And uh, the technology is not going anywhere. It's, it's going to be a huge piece moving forward still, but you have to be able to develop yourself 
and aptitude and kind of both areas of the spectrum. Cool. On the, on the mentorship side of things, do you actively run mentorship programs? Do they, they fall under, if they, if you do, do they fall under you guys internally? Do you fight, like offer mentorships for, from mm-hmm. people um, externally to the university? Do you, what do you, do you yeah, run mentorships? So we, do. we have, we have an internship program, which I'd say about 90% of our interns that come through, uh, come from outside the university uh whether they're doing it as part of a, a practicum so they can graduate from another university or it's just a another step in their professional development so we do have a an internship curriculum uh set up and then also a, a graduate system curriculum uh, but no it's it's a you know detailed process they're doing weekly projects and and research and uh, at the end of the semester they have to do a, a long presentation on some programming they've done kind of an annual plan uh for a team and those types of things but you know it's a, a big part of the the college setting has helped us all an awful lot and um you know i really believe in the grassroots movement and we've we've built our program from the ground up and uh really most most of my staff is former interns and graduate assistants at at one point in time but uh Something, something we take very seriously and uh, try to provide a lot of educational resources for our interns. But kind of going back to what I said before is, um, you know, being confident and, and competent in the, the sports science and, and all the research, but then also developing your coaching skills too. And that's something we, we really try and preach in our program with our young coaches is, um, you know, you got to be a practitioner and a researcher uh, and, and be able to, to understand how how this all comes together and and uh, you know basically form artwork, which is strength and conditioning. Cool. So I know you've mentioned well, I've mentioned a couple of times the, the articles that you've you've written recently. Where, where can people where can people get hold of them? Where will you direct people to if they want to have a little read into your thinking on a couple of subjects, a couple of topics? Yeah, um, and I'll simply faster. Uh, I just did one of the Friday Five for them. A lot of stuff on speed training and, and uh, mitigating hamstring injury risk. Uh, also done some pieces for uh, 1080 sprint. Um, so we, that's something we've gotten into the last uh, two years. And I've done some really cool stuff with sprint profiling, um, looking at some different things with that and some uh, assisted and over speed work with uh, field sport athletes. Um, uh, and then uh, also, They've done a little stuff for Coach Me Plus too, and how we've kind of integrated uh, some of those pieces. But um, a lot of a lot of it has been technology-based uh, stuff we've written on. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm, I you know I still got a little old school in me and a little football background, and uh, I, I've found it fun to try and uh, intricately blend uh, these these different aspects. Cool. And where can people find you on social media? Are you a Twitter guy? Uh, <laughs> not very good. Not very good. I follow a lot. Uh, you know, that's where I pick up a lot of good books and articles and all that. I don't do the best job of putting stuff up myself. Um, our uh, our department does have a good Instagram page, but we've been we've been uh, promoting a little bit more here recently. Um, hold on, I'm trying to uh, look it up real quick, but it's just Clemson Olympic Sports or Clemson. Ollie's strength is our Instagram. 
um, which would uh, be a good one to follow. We post some videos up there. I think we just put up actually uh, the other day a video of us doing some assisted runs with our soccer guys um, this summer. But, uh, yeah, that's a good, good – uh, that's probably our main social media piece that we use. Nice. Make sure I give it a follow. Have a little look at what you guys are doing. Oh, yeah. Need to get a little more active on it, but uh, but it's a start. Cool. No, absolutely. Well, Rick, I'm going to let you get back on with your day. Um, I know it's early afternoon over there. But thank you very much for giving me time to have a, have a chat. Really appreciate you uh, expanding on a couple of the articles and, and previous podcasts that you've done to, to, to come on here and, uh, and get that done. So thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, no, I enjoyed it, Rob. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Yep. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Rick. Big thanks to sponsors Val Performance, Forstex, and Black Box Fitness uh, for sponsoring this episode today. Also, huge thanks to Rick for giving up his time and chatting and being so open about what he does and what his team does over at Clemson University. So thank you to you for tuning in. If you haven't subscribed, please press subscribe on your chosen podcast player, wherever you listen to this, iTunes, uh, Podbean, Stitcher, wherever that may be. And that will enter your account, um, enter the app on Thursday a.m. slash p.m. slash Friday a.m., whenever I get to it. So yeah, thank you for your support. Um, Don't forget to press subscribe, and I will chat to you next week.